We read from the uh, text that I'll be looking at this evening, and probably wasn't the greatest idea to give me the morning off because I still have energy, Scott. Uh, <laughs> haven't preached today. Uh, the word is like a fire shut up in my bones. I think Jeremiah said that. Um, so, but conscious there are a few others. Uh, Ferd has a uh, 45-minute <laughs> charge to Scott, things he's been wanting to get off of his chest for a long time, I hear. Yeah, and uh, Mike's heard a lot about our congregation, has a lot of things to get off his chest. So, But... Um, I thought to myself, and this isn't, you know, there's a temptation to want to uh, do a charge to Scott before he gets a charge to Scott. This isn't a charge to Scott. My sermon is a sermon that I thought I would like to start from scratch and think if I had to preach a sermon to aspiring uh, candidates for the ministry, what sermon would you preach? And for some reason, God uh, led me to uh, seek out Jeremiah, and I thought, well, I'll start with chapter 1. It's the longest book in the Bible, Jeremiah. Uh, it is a book that if you were to just read the headings, and if I said for the next two minutes, just skim through all the headings, you would, uh, you'd be quite terrified at the headings alone in the book of Jeremiah. It's not easy reading. It's a very solemn book in many respects, but uh, that is the text that I'm going to be looking at, Jeremiah chapter 1. So uh, that's the plan, but before we do so, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon His Word and how it is preached. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We know that it is useful to us, whether written uh, 2,500 years ago, whether 500 years ago, uh, whether it is preached uh, by Jeremiah, or preached by Peter, or preached by your servants since then. It is a word to our souls, and it is a word that meets all of the needs of all of the peoples of the world, whether those in Christ or outside of Christ, whether those who are living for your glory or those who are against you. And so we pray that your word will be to us this night, words that Make us aware of the solemn realities of what it is to be in a world where there is sin, but also the glorious realities of being in a world where there is hope of redemption. And so we pray your blessing upon us tonight to that end. Amen. One of the thoughts that I had even as I kept preparing for the sermon, and it's a bit of a silly thought, to be perfectly honest, but I, I would, if I could, I'd love to have seen Jeremiah when he was first called to the ministry, a picture of him placed beside a picture of Jeremiah at the end of his ministry. Because I'm convinced you would have been able to see in such a graphic way what the ministry had done to Jeremiah, physically. Uh, not just what his soul and how it had been shaped by God, but physically what the ministry had done to him. In fact, not long ago, uh, after uh, not seeing a friend because of the pandemic, he lives in Washington State, and we finally had a chance to meet up. And it had been about two years, a very dear friend of mine and our families, we stayed together when we traveled down there. 
And he saw me and he said, wow, you got gray uh, over the last two years. And I said, yeah, uh, that's Pfizer's fault. But uh, <laughs> too soon. Uh, but he saw that I was not looking quite as youthful as I once did. And I shudder to think what Jeremiah would have looked like towards the end of his ministry compared to the beginning. Because of what stress, anxiety, heartbreak, suffering does to us in terms of our physical appearance. It really can do a number on someone. That was a thought that came to mind as I was preparing. Now, uh, as you know, he is called the weeping prophet. And the rabbis actually believe that Jeremiah came out crying and never stopped. And that was his lot in life was to be one who wept. In uh, the Sistine Chapel, actually, if you look at Michelangelo's portrait of Jeremiah, it's a very solemn picture of somebody who is uh, in a posture of despair. And that is Jeremiah's ministry. Now you may think, well, uh, is this really the right text to be preaching on? Is this not a happy occasion uh, and the answer is, of course, it is a happy occasion, but let's not mistake ourselves for one minute. Uh, we are living in a land where I do not currently see, at this point, a multitude of faithful, powerful preachers being anointed by God and bringing blessing to the land. I do not. I do not even see institutions and seminaries that are flowering in our nation where uh, godly men are being trained to lay down their lives for the church. I do not see that. So Jeremiah is a prophet we can look to because he was born under uh, Manasseh, the rule of King Manasseh, who was a godless and wicked man. There was the uh, issue of sexual immorality rife in the nation at that point in time, but also Manasseh was infamous for killing his own son as a sacrifice in order to win the favor of uh, deities that were not the true and living God. He was a wicked, wicked man. But also then, Jeremiah, when he begins his ministry, actually begins his ministry under a good king, King Josiah, which doesn't last very long, but then there is Zedekiah, there's Jehoiakim, and these are not uh, terribly uh, profound kings, they're not godly kings, uh, and then eventually, despite Jeremiah's long ministry, uh, his preaching doesn't keep the people of God from going into exile in Babylon. And so, in a certain sense, his preaching is one of defeat. God's people go into exile. And if you look at the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ, it is up until the time of Pentecost, if you look at His life before the cross, it really was, by and large, one of defeat. There was not wholesale conversions. There was more disappointment than success. And incidentally, uh, you can prove this by the very fact that He was killed for His preaching. He was rejected for his preaching. And it wasn't until his resurrection that God opens the floodgates of heaven and starts to bring the nations to Christ. But until then, 
Jesus Christ fared very much like Jeremiah. Disappointment, failure, heartache because God's people were stubborn and stiff-necked. But as you read through Jeremiah, you find out that this was truly a remarkable man, a polymath, a, a great Renaissance man before there was a Renaissance. And he could converse in all sorts of fields. He was a scholar. He could discuss politics. He could discuss economics, comparative religions. He understood geography. If you read, you can see botany, you can see zoology, anthropology, military strategy, architecture, industry, agriculture, fine arts, poetry. This was a very sophisticated prophet that God had raised up. And you see something of that in his call in the verses from 4 to 10. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. If Jeremiah is going to have the type of ministry that he is going to have, it is absolutely essential to Jeremiah that he understands his calling is divine, that it is so divine that it was before Jeremiah had even been formed that he'd been appointed as a prophet to the nations. In other words, God has always known that Jeremiah would be his appointed vessel to preach to the nations, to preach to his people. And Jeremiah needs to know this. It is a certain irrevocable call. It is from God. And God orchestrates all events in Jeremiah's life from the time he is formed in the womb to the time that he is a young man whereby God will then speak to him and say, you are going to be my prophet. You belong to me. This life is not your own, but you belong to your faithful Savior. And you will do what your faithful Savior tells you to do. And Jeremiah needed these words of assurance. Why? Because he saw rebellion before his eyes. He saw wickedness before his eyes. And so if he was going to be a prophet to these wicked people, it was no less than the living God who would have to tell him that he would have to be a prophet to these people. And then you notice he has a response. Verse 6, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And I've gone back and forth this week on whether this is sinful of Jeremiah or whether this is a perfectly natural response. And I've actually fallen on the side where I think this isn't necessarily a sinful response. I believe Jeremiah understood the gravity of of precisely what was being asked. And if you actually look at the way in which many of God's servants respond, there is a certain reticence that I think stems from a godly fear of what they are going to have to do. In other words, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't think it would have made any sense to Jeremiah, for someone to say, yes, I'm going to go into the ministry. It's going to be so wonderful and exciting, and I can't wait to get started. That was my attitude, by the way, in seminary. I applied to be the pastor of Westminster Chapel in Lethbridge when I was like 22. I told them that at the last installation. 
Then a lady came up to me after and said, I, I don't remember seeing your resume. I said, if you had seen my resume, you would have laughed. I had no idea what I was thinking, what I was doing. And it is only God's grace that actually can alert somebody before they enter into the ministry that they are entering into something that must be of divine origin. When I was four years old, I walked on a roof in South Africa. My dad owned a roofing company and one of his workers said to him, Boss, because he always called him Boss, he says, Boss, he's going to be a minister. And my dad laughed because they weren't going to church. And he says, we're business people, us Joneses. We're not religious people. He says, no, boss, he's going to be a minister. And it was interesting because when I became a Christian at university, I knew I was going to be a minister. And I told my dad, and then he told me that story. But the point was actually that I knew that once I was converted, that there was nothing that was going to stop me from being a minister but it was only God's grace that could ever get somebody to ever understand the solemnity of what that means. And that can sometimes take a lot longer than the actual desire to be a minister. Well, Jeremiah, I think, understood this from a very young age, given his context and the people he was surrounded by. And so God says, do not be afraid. He had said that to Abraham. When he had called Abraham, do not be afraid. He said it to Moses, same words, do not be afraid. He said it to Daniel, he said it to Joshua. Jesus to his disciples in Luke's Gospel, do not be afraid. And to Paul when he is converted, do not be afraid. Why are all these people afraid? Why aren't they going, this is wonderful, we can't wait to get started. Why are they afraid? Because they know their own heart and they know the hearts of people they will minister to. And that should terrify you. It really should. But that's not the whole story. Otherwise, no one would ever go into the ministry. And the reason people do go into the ministry is because of God's answer. Notice, what he says. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I am with you. There are very few things that can stifle a ministry than the fear of man. The fear of man probably is one of the more powerful forces that keeps a minister from being truly effective in his ministry. Fear of man and the love of praise. And the fear of man is connected to the love of praise. And the more you love the praise of man, the more you will fear man. So that you will do things in order to receive that praise. But Jeremiah is being told not to fear because God is with him. Now, where did that get Jeremiah? Well, if you go forward to about chapter 38, for example, you don't need to go there now, but you can see where did this get Jeremiah, where God says, don't be afraid, I'm going to be with you. So God has said these words at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, don't be afraid, I will be with you. And so what happens to Jeremiah? So they took Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. 
And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Joseph, do not be afraid, for I am with you. You will end up in a similar position. Jonah, do not be afraid, I am with you. You will sink into the depths of the sea. Jesus, do not be afraid, for I am with you. You will sink into the pit of hell on the cross. Do not be afraid, I am with you. And that actually means God can take you anywhere He wishes. Anywhere. If He's with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. So then God puts out His hand, touches His mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put My words in your mouth. And I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now you notice in the latter part of verse 10, there are six verbs there. And four of them are negative and two are positive. So 66% of Jeremiah's ministry is basically given to the negative aspect and 33% to the positive, if you were to uh, divide it up that way. And if you read through the book, you can see sort of this unfolding. It's not all doom and gloom, but it's a lot of doom and gloom. Now, I will say this. Does that mean that every person who's being ordained into the ministry, whether Scott, whether myself, or anyone else here, has to then say, well, that means for me, 66% of what I preach has to be doom and gloom. I remember the pastor I was converted under in South Africa he was preaching some doom and gloom. And the elders took him aside and said, you know, uh, Patrick, uh, do you think you could maybe uh, lighten things up a little bit and, you know, a little bit more hope? And so he got into the pulpit the following week and he says, you know, the elders have spoken to me. <laughs> and if you want soft, syrupy sermons, you can have those, but they will do your soul no good. Well... Maybe he thought of Jeremiah. I'm not suggesting that there's a tight analogy here. I'm not arguing that uh, it has to be two-thirds doom and gloom. I will say this though, there is an analogy in this sense. Sin has to be dealt with in some sense, does it not? In other words, sin has to be called out. There has to be some negativity. There has to be a specific calling out of sin and a call to repentance, the striking down, the cutting down of human pride, of evil in your hearts, and to know that you are by nature a wicked, evil person, and left to yourself, you will destroy yourself, and that then the only hope to be built up is God's grace. There has to be that in some sense, right? But I fear a lot of preaching today couldn't convict a flea because of the fear of man. Because of the love of the praise of man. I have given you words so that you can pluck up and break down to destroy and to overthrow. And yes, to build and to plant. So then you go on in Jeremiah and you could really open up Jeremiah at any page. We could try that. I'm not going to and say, all right, turn to any page in Jeremiah and just start reading. Probably get the answer to this verse. 
But for example, Jeremiah will say, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. This is his preaching. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. So he actually calls out the religious establishment for their unjust gains. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. Ah, they have not actually convicted anyone. They have glossed over all that God has commanded. Saying what? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punishment, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. That's Jeremiah's ministry to these people. There has to be a destroying of sin. And that was the same for Isaiah. You read Isaiah chapter 6 and what God does and how He commissions him. And then it is, go and speak to these people and say, be seeing but not actually see. Be hearing but you won't actually hear. Why? Because these people are caught up in idolatry. They will have organ sensory malfunction and they will not be able to see or to hear. So then he gets two visions and the word of the Lord comes to him. And I'll just briefly go over these. We won't get into them. There's a lot of word play going on in verses 11 and 12. But he says, Jeremiah, what do you see? He sees an almond branch. And the word play is upon uh, watching over. So then in verse 12, the Lord said to me, Ah, you've seen well, for I am watching my word to perform it. I'm watching what you say, Jeremiah. And I'm watching to see that everything that I command you to say needs to be said. And it will bring about the purposes for which I send it. Then another word comes to him, and it is a boiling pot facing away from the north. And we end up finding out that this boiling pot with its contents would spill southwards into the people of God, not to the nations, but to the people of God. From Syria and Palestine, an impending disaster is going to happen. And so this means that the people of God are going to have all sorts of anxiety and apprehensions about the uneasy political situation around them. Jeremiah has to tell them that God is going to use these wicked nations who he has said are not my people to judge his people. So what does God do after he tells Jeremiah of this solemn ministry that he's going to have to carry out? But you... Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. There's a whole sermon just in those words. Say to them everything that I command you. No sins of omission in your ministry, Jeremiah. No leaving out the difficult parts that need to be said. Everything that I command you. Don't be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. If you're fearful of them, I'm going to expose you for what you are. So don't be. There's a very stern warning there in verse 17. And behold, but there is a promise. I make you this day a fortified city. An iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. Again, just those four words there, against the whole land. Imagine hearing that. I'm going to make you strong against this person in the church. No. I'm going to make you strong against the youth of the church. 
the wicked youth, you know, the ones who said to the prophet, go on up, baldy, get eaten by a bear. I'm going to make you a pillar of bronze before the elderly of the church. No, I'm going to make you fortified against the whole land. Against not just the whole land, but even the regal, the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. You are going to be against everyone, Jeremiah. But it doesn't matter because I am with you. And how will they respond? With faith and repentance and thanksgiving and joy in their hearts? No, they will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. It does say in the, when you look at sermon outlines and things like commentaries and stuff, it says exhortation and promise, you know, and it, I think the commentators all want us to see something here where it's like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But it's still really quite terrifying. I'm going to be with you, but everyone's going to fight against you. I'm going to be with you, but from the highest to the lowest, they're going to reject you. And yes, God can say to us, I'm going to be with you, but how many promises has God given to you and to me? And we still fear. And we still worry. And we still have anxiety. And we still doubt Him. And we have even greater promises in a sense than Jeremiah received. So what is the point of the sermon? It's to dissuade anyone in here from the ministry. If you can do anything else, don't be a prophet. Don't. That's what Spurgeon said. If you can do anything else, don't be a minister. But if God has called you, then nothing will stop you. And oh, I wish that were the case with pulpits in this land where the only ones preaching were actually ones who had been determined from before they were born, had been made by God Himself and equipped by God Himself and sanctified by God Himself. And so they could say, I have spoken all the words that God has given me to say. Just as Jesus said, I only speak the words the Father has given me. But we don't. We have hundreds, maybe thousands of people in pulpits today who don't belong there. They are ill-equipped. They are godless. They lack knowledge. They are weak and they are pathetic. And they have people, sometimes God's people, sitting there being fed lumps of coal every Sunday. Being fed half a gospel which is no gospel at all. What does Jesus do in His ministry? He tears down before He builds up. Before Matthew 28, where He says, Lo, I am with you to His apostles to the end of the age. In Matthew 23, He had called the religious leaders whitewashed sepulchers. He exposed them for who they were and told them that they had to clean the inside before making the outside clean. And then in chapter 24, what does he do? He talks about how there will be the destruction of the temple. That there will be a tearing down of the old religious way. But There's also something remarkable about the tearing down and building up. 
that Jesus Himself in His life is an actual illustration of precisely that. In John chapter 2, destroy this temple. Destroy this sin-bearing temple that takes away the sins of the world. Destroy this temple that takes your sins and my sins. Destroy this temple in the ugliest way imaginable. And I will raise it up. God will build this temple back up. And God will make this temple to be a living temple, a growing temple, so that not only Christ will be raised up, but Christ will raise His people up with Him. But there must be a destruction. There must be a crucifying of the old man, of all of the lusts, of all of our sins, in that destruction of the temple before we can be built up. And Christ enters into that reality in His life of destruction before there is building. And so what we have, as I said, are greater promises now than Jeremiah received. We do have hope. We do have Christ who says, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That I will go and send My people into all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And there is great hope because Christ has now been raised and Christ is now building and Christ will have His glory. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for Your Word and we ask that we will take seriously sin and wickedness and evil in this land and in our own hearts but that we will also take even more seriously Christ in our own hearts who is building us up into a holy temple, a grand temple, an illustrious temple that will one day be the glory of this world. And so we pray that we will have some role to play in that. For Jesus' sake, amen.